Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. So our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 13. It starts in verse 31 and it says, <clears throat> When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Good morning. Thank you for that. I can think of no greater prayer than uh, Lord reveal your glory in this time this morning, so I pray that that takes place. Um, for those of you that don't know, haven't met me, I'm Aaron Kircher. Um, I joined Rev uh, with the merger earlier, beginning of this year, I guess it was. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a great joy to get to know many of you, many of you and, and participate in the life of the body here, um, connect with old friends I've gotten to do, uh, lots of that, and so, um, that's a little bit about me. I also want to take a moment and just, um, I know we've been talking on social media and other things about uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, but I just wanted to take the moment and say thank you to all of our pastors here. We also have a pastor visiting that's on sabbatical at his church, and just all of you uh, men and your wives and your families, thank you very much uh, for serving us faithfully in the way you have. Appreciate all of you guys and, and your families. <laughs> yes. So, before I start into this sermon, I need to just confess something to prevent the enemy from, <laughs> from bringing condemnation to me in this time. This is a hard passage for me. It, it was difficult for me to study and come face to face with ways I have not loved the body of Christ well, um, maybe for many years. Um, and so uh, I had a lot of conviction um, this week, and it may even come out somewhat in the preaching this morning as we, as we look at this passage. The Lord is doing a work in me. I love his body. I love Rev. I love you all, those I know, those I have 
yet to get to know. And um, I just want to confess that up front to prevent condemnation coming against me while I'm preaching, um, because this was really, really hard. Um, and the last sort of housekeeping item is we're going to focus really on verses 31 through 35 this morning and the part on Peter's denial. Uh, Bren's going to address in a future sermon. All right, so I titled this sermon The Marks of a True Believer because that's what Peter's, or sorry, that's what Jesus is talking about in this time. So sort of to set the, the context and setting for where we're at, um, this is Thursday night of Passover. Um, Jesus will be in the grave this time tomorrow um, as they're gathered around the remnants of the Passover meal. That's what uh, Brent talked about uh, last week. Um, and everything between verses uh, 13, or sorry, chapter 13 and chapter 19 covers less than a 24-hour period. Um, and so what we have here is through 16, uh, the end of, of chapter 13 through 16, is we have Jesus really giving his last words, his last discourse um, to uh, the men, the 11 that are left in the room. The betrayer has gone out. Judas went out at the end of the last passage and, and, and uh, last week, and and our passage starts with when he had gone out. So he's gone, and it's the 11 men that love Jesus in the room with him. Um, in the other Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, another event occurs that John does not capture. And so after uh, verse 35 and before 36, this is when communion takes place. This is when Jesus has communion with his disciples. And we're going to do that later on in the, in, uh, this morning, but that's where this event is captured the first time in scripture. Um, so Jesus is getting out what he needs to, preparing these men that are going to lead his church in the coming weeks and months. Um, he's going to be judged by the Jewish leaders later on tonight. He's going to be before Pilate around seven in the morning. He's going to be on the cross at nine, and he's going to complete his work around three o'clock in the afternoon and be in the grave before sundown tomorrow. So that's where we're at. We're at the beginning of this time where he's teaching teaching these men that he addresses in verse 33 as little children. And that's not a derogatory term. He's not identifying them by a limitation. This is one of the most endearing terms Jesus uses with his disciples. It's the only time this, uh, that phrase is captured in uh, scriptures as he addresses his disciples. He says, little children. He loves these men. These men have walked with him, and they're going to things that he's been saying that he knows they don't understand, they're going to understand well in the next 24 hours. So then what we have here is a, that's a leadership training session before the official church launch in about 50 days from now at Pentecost in the upper room. These are the shepherds that will go up and train up pastors and deacons. These are the, these are the men that will build the church on the confession of Simon Peter that said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So this evening, he's saying goodbye to his closest earthly friends, um, men he has walked with, suffered with, taught. This is a remarkable time in all of Scripture, a very intimate moment that John alone invites us into. None of the other Gospels have anything about the evening after the foretelling of Peter's denial. So the other Gospels capture communion, and then Peter and Jesus' foretelling of that, and then it, it cuts off, and all the three other uh, Gospels. So we get to see for the next three, four chapters, um, hear the words of Christ as he prepares to go and complete his mission here on earth. 
Um, tomorrow for him will be in a word excruciating. So he begins his discourse communicating the two most prominent, distinct, and necessary traits for an individual believer, for his church, and for these 11 men sitting before him. These two things are is what we're going to look at this morning, the display of God's glory above all else and our love for one another. These are the marks of the people of God. These are the things that should make us distinct in whatever time and whatever culture we live in. The marks of desiring and purposing that in all things God receives glory. And secondly, our love, giving deference, meeting needs, setting aside our rights, our personal desires to love God's people. Those are the two distinctive distinctives of Christ's people. Starting with verse 31 and 32, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So he starts by drawing their attention to his and his Father's glory. So starting with that first statement, Now is the Son of Man glorified. He's drawing their attention away from themselves. For the past weeks, if you remember, these disciples have been arguing. They've been having these side conversations about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're ignoring that they're going to be sitting at the right hand or left hand of Jesus. They know it's, it's going to be about him, but they're preoccupied with a love for their own glory. And, and Christ has to deal with the, those two things, where their love is focused and where their desire for glory is focused. And so he's starting here with that. The first question we have to ask is, why now? Now is the Son of Man glorified. What makes this time correct for the Son of Man to be glorified? And to be clear, he's not talking about this minute. He's talking about the larger moments. So we have to understand how Christ's humiliation and crucifixion and death is the time in which he calls attention to his glory. Why is the occasion of Christ being nailed? We have this cross right here to this device, this torture device, being humiliated? Why is that the moment that he's glorified in? Why wasn't it at the beginning of his ministry on the banks of the Jordan when we came up out of the water? The voice from heaven spoke saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, and the dove descends. Why, why was that not the moment which he was glorified? Or in Matthew 17 when they're on the mountain and he's transfigured and his glory comes through his, his skin and even his clothes have the appearance of his glory, and the voice again comes from heaven. Why not that moment? Now is the Son of Man glorified. Or why not wait until after the cross and the tomb and his work is completed and he comes back and he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Why is it this moment? The second question to ask is why the cross? What makes this ancient torture device, this cruelest of ways to die, one that makes whoever hangs on it an object of humiliation and scorn, an object in which all dignity would be removed from the one hanging. They'd be stripped naked, nails pierced through hands and feet, maybe more sensitive parts of the body, a place in which you would lose control of all bodily functions, hung at a height where a crude child or an unruly crowd could throw rocks or poke with sticks. The cross may have been lower than we often think about, almost at eye level. The way, the way you most likely died was from asphyxiation as you hung there and you, you couldn't support the weight of your body 
to lift it back up, to draw air into your lungs. And this could last over a matter of days. We have a word that was invented to describe the pain and cruelty of the cross. I said it a minute ago. It's excruciating. That means it's from the cross. How is Christ glorified in that? Why now? And why a cross? The answer to both those questions is because at the cross, Christ's perfect life and joyful sacrifice is on display. I say joyful because Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's bigger than the moment. It's bigger than what humanity sees. There's things happening in the supernatural. He pays the debt of our sin, absorbing and exhausting the wrath of God. All of it. None of it left. Sin must be punished, and he is glorified because in Christ our sins were punished. God's wonderful plan to overturn the evil in the world by placing the sins of those who trust in him, those who have already died in the world, um, those who are with him in that moment, and those like us who have yet to come. He takes our particular sins, not the sin of lying, but lies I've told, lies you've told, and he places them on Christ, and he crushes his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus says he gets glory for that. His blood flows down from the cross, flows to the beginning of time, and flows to the moment when he calls his last saint home. And it washes away our sin, not just covers over like the old system did. It washes away. The sin is no more. It has been dealt with. Isaiah 53, you know this passage, it's a central passage, but listen to it again thinking about the cross. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is why Christians can give glory to God in worshiping and singing songs like, Oh, the wonderful cross, and Jesus, thank you for the cross. The object of worship is not the cross in those songs. It's the one who died on it who's to be glorified. This is why we call this ancient torture device the cross good news. Generations at Christ's time and previous would not understand us glorifying that, wearing it around our necks, celebrating that. They would have no, no idea why we would celebrate something like that. We do, because on that altar, the Lamb of God took away our sins and through it, God receives the most glory in any event in history. So the next question is, how is God glorified in him? So how is God the Father glorified in Jesus in this event? God is glorified in him, meaning the activity, faithfulness, and obedience of Jesus. He did the instructions of his Father. Jesus' expressed goal during his ministry was to do the works of and give glory to his Father in heaven, in all things, the very things he's calling his disciples and us to do now. So how does the cross and Christ's death on it give glory to God? In this horrendous act, 
God's attributes are on full display. God's holiness, his justice, his mercy, and his love. That's how God is glorified in him, his attributes on display with no conflict, no incongruency, perfectly displayed. We'll, we'll look at just a couple of them. How is the holiness displayed? Well, we've been commanded to live holy lives. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All of us commanded to live perfect lives. None of us have ever done it. Only one person who ever lived has ever done it. There's only one who obeyed the command and perfectly lived his life, pointing to the holiness of God. He had to be the perfect Lamb of God whom there was no sin or blemish was found. And Jesus images forth the holiness of his Father on the cross, and God is glorified in him. Next, we see the justice of God. Justice is done. It is finished, as Christ said with his last breaths. Never, God cannot extract full justice from imperfect, sinful beings. Even if we were sent to hell for all eternity, imperfect punishment for all eternity would not pay the price that is demanded. Only God himself in his holiness could come and take it on and have it exhausted in infinitely holy Christ. God becoming both the just and the justifier. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a sacrifice that turns away wrath and, and invites favor. By his blood to be received by faith, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is God, might be both the just and the justifier. Sin must be punished or God is not just. In the work of Christ on the cross, God has shown himself to be the just, meaning punished fully our sins, meaning the meeting the demands of justice, and the justifier. He can declare us acceptable before him. And the Savior of all those things who trust in Jesus, that's us, we are justified then by that. At the cross, God's justice and love meet, and there's no conflict between those two things. All the attributes of God are in full display with no conflict. God is glorified and Christ is glorified. We can go on and on about the different attributes of God, sermon after sermon. Just know his great love for his creation displayed on the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God. God and Jesus should receive all glory from the church for this good news. So this is the gospel. Our sin caused death and offense against God, and instead of destroying his creation as we deserve to be, he sends his own son to make a way and display his love and the glory of God in his perfect, that's Christ's perfect obedience and joyful sacrifice, and we glorify God for the gospel. He finishes with, God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once, immediately, and that's the new dimension. God will glorify Jesus immediately. Glorification, ascension, intercession, and coronation. He will rise with his resurrection body. He will ascend to the Father in his throne, where he will intercede for us, those he died for, with his blood offering. And then coronation. We saw a few weeks ago, he, he came into Jerusalem where he was declared the king. And he's reclaimed that title with his death, purchasing it at the cost of his life. 
the first and driving element in the life of every Christian is a belief and a mindset that says, your glory first, God. Not my glory, not my rights, even the ones granted by him. A Christian is marked first and foremost by a desire that God be glorified in all things. Uh, campus pastor at Bethlehem Baptist said it this way, we glorify God in everything because God glorified God in everything. We glorify God in everything because God glorified God in everything. So that was the first instructions Christ gave to his people as he begins this discourse this evening. Stop looking out for your own glory. Now is the time for me to be glorified. Next, we have a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the second mark of a Christian, a child of God, a true believer, is that we have love for one another. And when I say love, I know I have too small of an idea of, of what that means and what's required of us to live that way. Christian love is an unyielding, unrelenting, uncompromising need and desire to care for and be with the people of God. Love in word, but mostly in deed. Our actions speak of our love. And this is a commandment. This is a new commandment, he says. So there's no, there's no asterisk to this command, no footnote with a list of exemptions, only crystal clear commands to love. This is agape love. Um, a word early Christians helped give definition and form to um, because there was no word to capture what it is we are called into. It is a selfless love. It is a love that transcends circumstances. There's no circumstances in which we're not called to exercise love. And the reason for this love ties to the previous point, and that is when agape love is exercised, God receives glory and, the, and, and that's on display for the whole world is what he said. So you'll, people will know that you are mine. We're told to agape one another. So as God is being glorified and brothers and sisters are being served and cared for, our love for one another is a testimony to the world about the greatness and goodness of our God. The thing about agape is it's to be a display of love that the world doesn't know. It's It's unique. It should be shocking and unparalleled in secular society. It should be something that makes much of the church and much of Christ. So first of all, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. So the first question we have is, why is this new? How is this new? The law required loving others. Paul says this in Romans 13, for the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if we loved our neighbors properly, we fulfill the law. We wouldn't need all the commandments. If we just, as we walk and interact and engage one another, if we thought, how can I love this person? We're going to fulfill and obey the commandments. We wouldn't need any of the other ones. So the new commandment part isn't about loving he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Christ qualifies how it is we are to love one another, and it is an unqualified example he puts forth. Love 
as I have loved you. With those words, we know where to look and how to, how to live, what to understand about how we're to walk together in love as the body of Christ. Love has been an expectation since the law was established, but this evening his instruction to the eleven comes from the good shepherd himself, and his instructions are to agape as I agape. So later in the evening, in John 15, Jesus gives the same command again and puts a little more flesh on it. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So that's the same commandment we have. But then he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the new commandment to love is Christ loved. And that he says later on in the evening, that means up to and including laying down your life. And we hear laying down our lives, and we think of Christ's death. We're looking back through history to this moment through the cross. They don't know everything we know in this moment, but we do. We know that the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate display of love will be Christ's death. But there's other ways to understand laying down our life. Could it be setting aside our rights, our liberties, our freedoms, our pursuit of happiness? Christ points to the ultimate thing, which is lovingly, willingly laying down our lives. So by reason, then, every lesser thing, every lesser opportunity to show love would fall under the command to lay down our lives. <clears throat> I drank too much coffee before this and sucked the moisture out of my mouth. All right, do you see the logic? Do you see the reasoning? Laying down, giving up everything is what we're commanded to do, and that means we're also commanded to do everything that's less than that. We're told, given the opportunity, we're to give up our lives for one another. Surely anything less than dying for someone would fall under that command. So as the Lord worked on my heart, this is where I struggled this week. Um, I looked back at um, a lot of the last years of my life as I'd come out of being a pastor at a church for about a decade and engaged with City Church and was very loved there by pastors and, and the body there and tried to serve, but I didn't love the church well. And even as we've come here to Rev and been very, very loved. I have held myself away from the church. I've not engaged. I've not loved you guys well, and I'm sorry for that. Um, I, I don't want to do that. I feel it in my family. Even as, uh, even as I, I preach it now, I, I feel like there has been a very large gap in my Christian walk as far as loving other people. And I, I um, you know, I preached off and on for years, and, and one of the things I've been aware of, oftentimes pastors and, and um, preachers and, and even scripture, when talking to the body of Christ, calls it beloved. And I, I've thought for years that that's a great term, but I've, I've never been able to use it. And that was a choice I made. I didn't feel it. Maybe I didn't believe it. I don't know. But I do say now that as I preach here and stand before you, I, I can call you beloved. I love Rev. I love the body of Christ because of what Jesus has done and so that he receives all glory. I can say now, beloved, let us glorify God together. Let us love in a way that is remarkable. I look back then in the recent even year and a half where we've been in a very unique time in history not an unprecedented time, but unique for how it's worked out in culture, and I've wondered what are ways I could have lived differently, 
What are things I could have done differently to bring the body of Christ together more? Um, all those types of things the Lord's been working on my heart this week. And I just want to confess them, um, speak to them. Maybe you have been offended by me in some fashion because of that. And I'm sorry for that. Please come let me know so I can make it right. But the commandment to love and lay down our life, you know, we can think about it and maybe think we're prepared to do the greatest thing, which is to die, to step in front of the bullet, whatever that looks like. But there's a million opportunities in between this moment and that in which we can love one another. So just confessing that, sharing that with you all. So we're looking at how Christ lived and what Christ did as an example for us so that we know what to do and how to live ourselves. In Paul, uh, Paul says in, in Philippians to the church in Philippi in, in chapter 2, verses 5 and 8 through 8, excuse me, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Paul unpacks what was in the mind of Christ. It took humility. He humbled himself. We cannot agape without being humble. He sets aside his deity, and he took the form of his creation to save us, to love us, and to help us see what humility is. He modeled it when he washed the disciples' feet a few weeks back. We saw that. Rabbis didn't wash feet. That's not what they did, but this one did. Ours did. We can't out-humble God. There's no earthly equivalent to setting aside deity and coming and dying for sinful man, which means there's nothing we can do in our humbling of ourselves with one another that matches his act of humility. So there is nothing we are not called to do because of the example he gave us. What does this mean for us then? Well, in verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 2, Paul says this, so there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We are in full accord and one mind when together we agree that God will get glory in all things at all costs. And we choose to bear this mark of humble love and live in such a way that the world looks at the church and says, I want that. I must have that. And they're driven to ask us, why would you live this way? What would you do? And through that, God gets glory. We've set aside our selfish ambitions. We've humbled ourselves and looked out for the needs of others. And we want God to get glory, so we agape. Christian love counts others' needs and rights as more important than the exercise of our rights. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Humbling because we want to revere Christ. 
These are foreign concepts to the American church. I think in a lot of ways we have our American gospel that's very, very different. And so I thought about it this way, and this is one of those things that maybe it was God working on me. It's difficult sometimes when God's working on you and you're preparing a sermon to know what's for you and what's for the body, but I'll bring this to you all. I thought about this line from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we live by those rights. They're important to us in the church and out. But I thought about how much love to others on my part does it take for me to pursue my happiness? If the pursuit of happiness and life and liberty was the gospel, I'd be in great shape. I wouldn't need a savior because <laughs> I live that way. That's my base nature. That's just serving the old man. Paul calls it in Romans 6. It takes no effort on my part to love someone else when I'm in pursuit of my happiness. So here's why, what I'm suggesting by bringing this up this way. As Christians, we're endowed by our Creator with greater gifts than what the Founding Fathers identified. Um, these rights endowed by our Creator, those that our Founding Fathers identified are granted to all humanity. Um, they're recognized uniquely in America. But we have special rights, special gifts that are given to us, special responsibilities. In our battle against the flesh and the rulers of this world, we've been given a new life. We are new creatures living for eternity. We have become sojourners and exiles, aliens to this world. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that, that our, this is our new life we have now. We've been given real freedom. We are no longer slaves to our flesh. Those are the things, the pursuit of happiness. We're no longer slaves to this world. He makes us sons and daughters. We move from slaves to sons and daughters. Galatians 5 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When I insist on my right to life and liberty, and when I pursue my own happiness, I'm returning to a yoke of slavery when I make those choices. He's given us a new heart, a heart of flesh, replacing our heart of stone. Ezekiel 36 says, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Stone hearts are dead hearts, and dead hearts can't love. And so he gives us a heart that can love and is supposed to love in remarkable ways. We've been given a renewed mind, able to think on things from above. Colossians 3.10, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of of its creator, right? We've been told to look to Christ and to live like he lives, and our mind is made new through that, by that. Having an example in Christ isn't enough. We're still slaves to our selfish desires. So he gives us a, a new heart, and he gives us a new life, and he makes us sons and daughters instead of slaves, and he gives us a heart of flesh. So having been endowed by our Savior with these things, clothed in his righteousness, seeking his glory above all else, we're able with these new gifts and abilities, new marks that every believer bears, is that we can do what we could not do before in the flesh, and that is lay aside our freedom, our life, our liberty, the pursuit of our happiness, and love others. And that is a love that the world does not know. 
That is the mark of a true believer, a willingness to set aside our rights and say, I choose to live for the glory of God and love others. The church, in many ways, is known to the world by its doctrine. And what I mean by that is we have all these different denominations. So Baptist, Presbyterian, Reformed, Methodist, whatever it is, the world looks at us and says they can't even get along to be in the same building. All right, the first thing we do when we become Christian, we join whoever maybe witness to us or we read the Bible and we go to the place where we feel like our conscience, conscience is more free to obey the word of God and worship him as we see in there. And that's why we have these different things. And we understand that. Um, we, love, we love brothers and sisters in other churches. Heaven will be full of people from different denominations. But it's unfortunate that the world sees that division when they look at the church from the outside. So that means all the more inside the walls of this building, beloved brothers and sisters, our conscience is most free to glorify God and obey his word. And the end of that is not just to be right, but it's to be transformed, to love and to live in a manner that the world does not know. It's a supernatural work, but he uses normal everyday things to do it, like fellowship in the body, gospel communities that we're a part of, reading scripture, worship and prayer, bearing one another's burdens, sitting under the preaching of the word, gospeling one another. Being the church is much more than about what we know. It's about who we know and who we're known by. And that should transform us into the most loving, God-glorifying people. Our knowledge, what we have learned, should ignite a passion to love because he had such great love for us. If we're able to do that inside the walls of this building as we go out, we will be the city on the hill that we're supposed to be, the light that cannot be put out. I'm just going to close by reading 1 John 4, um, part of the passage there. The band can come up. Beloved, this is a benediction, an exhortation, a prayer for us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also we are, are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. We're going to worship a little bit, and then we're going to do communion, and we're going to circle up 
um, as we've done in the past, something that I really love that we did at, at City Church. And um, But as you're preparing your hearts for this time, if I've offended in any way, I, I would love for you to come tell me so I can ask forgiveness. But if there's others in the room that you've offended, maybe work on your heart, maybe grab them, go back to the prayer room. Um, pastors will be available. Um, but let's take this moment um, to change the way we live as a church. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue 